I've got an awesome word for you this morning from Acts chapter 17, and we're continuing our series going through the book of Acts together, and this is a passage that is just packed full. I mean, it is overflowing. It is busting at the seams with goodness, with awesomeness, and I I don't even have time to do an introduction today because it's just so much awesome in this passage So we're just going to jump right in today, okay? Is that okay? Are we ready to receive God's word today? I'll I'll just talk to you guys today, all right? Uh, No, I'm just joking, just joking. But Acts chapter 17 is where we are. We're going to just dive right into this. Uh, Just a little bit of context is Paul is on a missionary journey. He's been kicked out of more towns than he can count. He started more riots than he can remember, uh, just preaching the gospel. And sometimes when you preach the gospel, people get upset. And that's what's happening in Paul's life. He was in a city called Thessalonica. They ran him out of there. They tried to kill him, ran him out of there. He went to a city called Berea. In Berea, the people from Thessalonica followed him and ran him out of Berea. And he left behind his missionary team there. Timothy and Silas, he left in Berea. Paul had to get out of town so quickly uh, because they were trying to kill him. He just, he just left on his own. And so he's all by himself. We don't see this very often. Paul normally travels with a team. He left them in Berea. He's now all by himself. And he, he calls for them to come and join him in a city named Athens in Greece. And so we're going to pick up the story today with Paul in Athens. And we're going to see how God uses this mighty man and this vessel uh, for his glory. So Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it says, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. Have you ever felt that way? Anybody ever have your spirit provoked a little bit? Are you alive in 2020? Hello? How, How do you live in 2020 and not have your spirit provoked? I mean, goodness, I can barely drive down the street without just wanting to yell at everybody, okay? Uh, come, come on, right? Like, there's stuff going on in our world that should make us a little bit upset about what we're seeing from time to time. Thank you, Grace. His spirit was provoked. What provoked his spirit? It says, as he saw that the city was full of idols, idols everywhere, There's an ancient historian that that wrote about Athens in this city, this time, this period when Paul was alive. He wrote in in his history that it was easier to find an idol than it was to find a human being in Athens. So full of idolatry. Paul gets there, he sees this, an idol in every corner, a temple to a foreign god everywhere. It provokes him in his spirit. So he reasoned. With the Jews in the synagogues, what is his response? What does he do? Provoked, what does he do? He shares the gospel. He preaches the gospel. He, he reasoned with the, in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So he goes to God's people, the Jewish people, and the synagogue where they are. But then he also goes into the marketplace where the Gentiles are, some of the thought leaders of that day. Verse 18 lists some of them, the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. These were the people who were philosophers. They had all these thoughts about God, 
a, you know, creation, creator, all of these philosophical ideas, Paul engages with them as well. And he conversed with them. And some said, these philosophers, they said, what does this babbler wish to say? That's not a compliment, by the way. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I love Paul. I love him. What does he preach? Jesus. What did he preach in Berea that got him almost killed? Jesus. What did he preach in Thessalonica that almost got him killed? Jesus. What does he always preach? Jesus. 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 Paul never wavers. Paul never changes his message. Preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul doesn't say, you know what? I keep getting almost killed for preaching this. Why don't I tweak this message a little bit? Why don't I dial back the Jesus a little bit? Why don't I dial back the the Bible says and the word of God is this? Why don't I tone that back a little bit and maybe I won't be thrown into jail so much. Maybe I won't be beaten so much. Maybe I won't have so many attempts on my life. Not Paul. Unfortunately, there are many in our day who have watered down the gospel because it is unpopular. It is an unpopular message. And unfortunately, there are many who claim to be preachers and claim to be pastors who do not preach Jesus, the gospel, the word of God. But Paul, and by God's grace, we will preach Jesus. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. That was a a place, uh, the city of Athens. There's this huge hill there. You can Google this online, see a picture of it. This kind of stony hill. This was a place where the thought leaders of the day, the government leaders of the day, the philosophical thinkers and and even those of different religions would come and they would debate their ideas. There was a place where you could take your, your thoughts, your ideas to be heard about philosophy, religion, government, things like that. And so they bring him to this place saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. You see, Paul was not watering down the message and, and, and like so many of our day, diluting the message so that it had no meaning. There are many in our day who, who take the strange things, the things that might seem strange to our modern ear, the virgin birth of Christ, the miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, the healing of the blind, and the bodily resurrection of the dead. All of the things that we see in Jesus' life, there are many who will look at that and say, yeah, that didn't really happen. That didn't really happen. In fact, my great-grandfather grew up in the Church of England where he was taught by his Sunday school teacher that the Bible was just a book of fairy tales. He grew up in church but never came to a saving knowledge of Christ because the gospel was never presented. Nevertheless, Paul doesn't 
pull any punches. Paul doesn't water down the gospel. And in fact, they say, this is strange. We're hearing you say some strange things. Can you come and explain them to us? Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. They love this stuff. New philosophy, new religion, new ideas, new thoughts on government, new thoughts on structuring society, new, 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 new. That's what they wanted all the time. So they, they, they're, they're interested in what Paul has to say because they've never heard this message before. So they bring Paul, they bring him to this place devoted to this kind of multiplicity of thoughts, multiplicity of ideas, pluralism, false gods, foreign gods, lots of gods. They bring him to this place to talk about and to debate his ideas. And can you guess what he does? Come on, this is week 35 in the book of Acts. Can you guess what he does? He preaches. He preaches. And he doesn't just give a little sermon on, here are 10 tips and tricks on how to have a good, happy life. Let me give you some tweaks on how to raise your kids or how to have a good marriage. Not that those things aren't good, but that's not what we as Christians are called to preach. And he preaches Jesus Verse 22 starts his sermon. So Paul, standing in the midst of the the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. So in the middle of Athens, with all of these gods, all of these idols, all of these temples, all of this false worship, there was an idol with the inscription set up, an an altar given to this idol to the unknown God. And Paul takes that phrase from that idol and he comes to them and he says, verse 24 or verse 23, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom were Dionysus, the Oropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Father, we thank you for your word. In the time that we have together, I pray that you would speak to each one of us. Lord, we all come from different places, from different uh, paths and walks of life. Lord, a diverse body here today, different ages, different stages of life, different upbringings, different education, different economic place and status, different languages, different cultures, even different nations. But you have brought us together to be a part of your church. You've called us to be a part of your body, the family of God, the church. Lord, you've predetermined that we would be alive in this time and in this season. It's not an accident that we're alive in 2020. It's by your sovereign decree and plan. So help us. Help us. Help us to live as your people in this day and age. Help us to shine your light. Help us to be salt. Help us to point others to you, the only saving faith. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Now, we look at these people in Athens and we think, oh, those poor little Athens. Those poor little Athenians. So uneducated. So unevolved in their thinking. Bowing down and worshiping these idols these false gods of stone and silver and gold. How silly. We're so much further evolved in our thinking than they were 2,000 years ago. And if you think this, you actually are suffering from what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. That's where you think that you're better than the people that live before you where you think that we are just so much more educated. We're not given to these myths of these gods and these deities. We don't worship idols anymore like they do. We're, we're, we're so much further along than the people that lived 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. The truth is, we're not. While our surroundings may have changed a little bit, We have not changed. Humanity has not changed one bit. The same problems that they had in their day and age are the same problems that we have in our world today. Why? Because humanity is plagued with sin. There may not be temples to idols and false gods on every corner like there was in Athens, but let me assure you that idolatry is very much alive in our world today. 
You see, as human beings, we were created by God to worship him. We were created in his image. We were designed to live in close fellowship and harmony with God. We were designed to devote ourselves wholly and fully to him, to give ourselves to him, to live our lives in such a way that showcases God's glory, showcases God's character, showcases God's nature to the world, to live in relationship to God, knowing him. This is what every human being was designed to do. And if we will not devote ourselves to the one true creator God, we will devote ourselves to someone or something else because we were created to worship. We see this in our day and age so clearly. People who devote themselves to things and people other than God. Don't we see that? People fully, totally devoted to their favorite sports team. People devoting themselves to pop culture and celebrity. People devoting themselves to music icons and, and, and musicians and bands and, and music artists. We, we see this in, in our day and age. And you, you might say, well, people don't really worship sports figures, teams, celebrities, musical icons, the way that they worship these idols in Athens. It's not the same thing. And I would say to you, really? Really? We all work with a rabid Spurs fan or Cowboys fan whose whole life is devoted to this team. And it's really sad right now because they're not doing very well. People who devote their entire lives to following their favorite sports team. They watch every game. They know every stat. Their favorite team or player consumes all of their waking thoughts. To the point where if somebody that they know wears another jersey or another sports team, they, they call them a heretic. They say that they've fallen away, that, that they're lost. That they've turned off the, the straight and narrow and they've gotten into some sort of false teaching and religion. This is how people live their lives who are consumed with sports. When their team wins and is victorious, they win and are victorious. When their team loses and gets crushed, they lose and are crushed their identity fully wrapped up, fully consumed with their sports. That is worship. Pop culture, people who follow their favorite celebrities like it's a cult. They try to emulate every aspect of their lives, wearing the same clothing, doing their hair and makeup in the same way even buying the same perfume and cologne that they wear so they can walk around smelling like them. Their every waking thought consumed with the gossip that's surrounding their life. Who are they dating now? Who are they also dating now? It's just constant. That is worship. 
conforming themselves to the image of their idol instead of the image of Christ. When it comes to music, we don't even try to hide that they're idols. We have a TV show literally called American Idol. Not even trying to hide it. This past week, a a guitar icon, a guitar idol passed away at a pretty young age. Eddie Van Halen passed into eternity. And people all over the music world are in mourning because their guitar idol, literally guitar idol, passed away. I am, I am, I, I used to be a musician. I used to play guitar. It's still a somewhat of a hobby of mine. I, 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 I keep my finger kind of in that world just a little bit. And in that world this week, the, the, you know, everybody who's a guitar player changed their Facebook picture to Eddie Van Halen's icon. Um, saying things and posting like, he was my idol. He changed my life. It's not just Eddie Van Halen, it's all kinds of musicians, all kinds of bands, all kinds of musical artists. Not filling, people not filling their mind with the word of God. Instead, they're much more likely able to quote word for word all the lyrics from their favorite artists' songs. But can't recite to you one verse from the word of God. Filling their minds, saturating their thoughts, not with God's word, but with other people's thoughts, ideas, and words. That is worship. These aren't even the most dangerous kinds of worship, false idolatry in our world. The most dangerous kind today is people who don't worship God as he's revealed himself to us in scripture, but they worship a God of their own making. So they formulate in their own minds a a God that they want to worship, not God who is here in Scripture. So they formulate a God that is perfect, that, that they say is just loving. He's all love, but he's no justice. He's all love, but he's no holiness. They formulate a God in their mind, not as revealed in Scripture, but a God who would never judge anyone, who would never judge the world of sin, who would never send a sinner to hell. That's not the one true God. That's the God of your imagination. And that's the most dangerous kind of false God. And that's really the God and that's at work in the world today. This false God of people's own imagination. And when people do that, they actually form a God in their image instead of allowing God to form us in his image. It was John Calvin who said that the human heart is an idol factory. Listen, we were designed to worship. And if we will not worship God, we will worship someone or something else. And when Paul sees the idolatry on display in Athens, his spirit is provoked. And the question that lays before us, the people of God today, is when we see people in our world and in our lives consumed with idolatry, is our spirit provoked? Is our spirit provoked or do we not recognize it for what it is? Do we not recognize it for what it is? 
Paul's spirit is provoked. Well, what does he do? He preaches. He preaches the gospel. He walks into their darkness, shining the light of Jesus Christ. He confronts their lies with the truth of Jesus. And in verse 17, it tells us how often he does that. Every single day. Every single day. So now as we look at Paul's sermon today, there's eight things that I see in this sermon that I want to share with you, that I want to highlight for you today. Eight things that he preaches to them about. And Paul's whole point in his message is, look, I can tell you're very religious. I can tell that you're very devoted in your pursuit of these idols. But the truth is, religion will not save you. Religion does not save. Only faith in the one true and living God is what saves. You see, you can be very devoted. You can be very religious. But if you don't have faith in God, if you don't know God, you're lost. And so Paul comes to this very religious people and he introduces them to God so that they may know him and that they may, as Jesus said, have eternal life by knowing God. And so I want to look at this sermon that he preached briefly this morning about knowing God. The question I have for you is, do you know God? Do you know God? Not some imaginary figment of your imagination, God, but the one true and living God who has revealed himself to us in Scripture and in his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you know God? I pray that you do. And I pray that if you don't, you leave here today knowing him. The first thing he tells us about this God is that he is the creator of everyone and everything. God is creator. God's revelation from himself to humanity is the Bible. The Bible begins with this declaration. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of everyone, of everything. There was a time when nothing but God existed and everything that now exists, exists because God created it. Psalms 146, 5 and 6 says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. God is the creator of everyone and everything. If you're going to know God, you need to know that he is the creator. The second thing that Paul says in verse 24, not only is God the creator, he's also the Lord of his creation. God is Lord. Psalms 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Psalm 103, 19 says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Because God is the creator of everything, he is the rightful ruler over all his creation. This verse in Psalm 103 shows us the, the high and exalted position of God ruling 
reigning sovereignly over his creation. God is creator. God is Lord. Number three thing that Paul says in verse 25 is that God is the author and the giver of life. Verse 25, he gives life to all mankind and breath to everything. The reason you're alive today is because God has given you life. That's why you're alive. God is the author of life. God is the source of life. God is the giver of life. If anything is ever living, it's because God has put life in that. Life does not spring forth from death. That's not the way it happens. Dead things on their own do not come to life. They only come to life at the power of God who gives life. You never watch a rock in your backyard get up and walk out. It never just wakes up one day and says, wow, I'm a rock. A rock is not laying there contemplating its existence or its purpose and meaning in life. Why am I here as a rock? That's, life does not come from things that are not living. Living things only come from things that are alive. We are alive because God is alive and has given us life. Psalm 104, 14 and 15, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. You want to know God? You have to know that he is the author and the giver of life. Number four, he says that God is in control. Not only is God the sovereign ruler, seated on a throne, high and exalted over his creation, not only is he Lord, He's also intimately involved in the details of our lives. He expresses this in verse 26, where he says that God made mankind from one man, that's Adam, every nation to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The dream that God gives King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2 is a great picture of this. That God is not only sovereign, he also is in control of the events of human history. The dream that God gives King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel chapter 2, you should read it this week, it is amazing. He gives him a dream of four kingdoms, one arising after the other. He starts with Babylon, the king of Nebuchadnezzar, who he was the king of Babylon. He tells him that the Medes and the Persian will, Persians will conquer Babylon, that Greece will conquer the, the Medes and the Persians, and that Rome will conquer Greece, that these four kingdoms will arise. 
and he tells them ahead of time, and he tells them this is my plan and this is my purpose. And, and here we see in this uh, Acts chapter 17 that God is actually the one who predetermines which nation will rise, which nation will fall, where the boundaries of their borders will be, and who will live in those nations. It is up to God. You're alive today in 2020 in the United States of America, in Texas, in San Antonio, because God put you here now. It's not an accident. It's not an accident. God is in control. The rise and fall of nations, in the hands of God. The geographic area that they inhabit, in the hands of God. The very borders that they have, in God's hands. Number five, he tells us that God is not far from us. He's not far from us. Sometimes we might feel like God is so far away. We read how he's high and exalted, how he's seated on a throne, how he's ruling and reigning over all the universe. And we sometimes think God is way out there. God is not only eternal, God is not only sovereign, God is not only highly exalted, he's also imminent, he's also Emmanuel, God with us. God is not far from us in the person of Jesus Christ. God got off his throne, came from heaven, was born of the virgin. The word became flesh, God become flesh and dwell among us. He showed us how to live. He he showed us how to live a life of, of, of perfect obedience, the perfect example, fully obeying his Father in heaven. But he did not stop there. He he because if he only gave us a good example and left us with that, we would be totally hopeless and lost. But he did not stop at the example, he pressed on to move from the example into the substitutionary payment for our sin. And he went to the cross and he offered up his life for our lives. His perfect righteousness for our complete and total failure and shame and sin. And he is not far from us. He is not far from us. You may feel that God is way out there. Let me tell you, God is right here. And in Christ today, God is beckoning you. He is calling you. He is saying, I love you. Come to me. Let me forgive you. Wash you clean. Take your life of shame, your aimlessness, your wandering, and give you a life of purpose, a life of hope, a life of meaning. Bring you into my family. God is not far from us. Verse 6, or or number 6 in verse 30 He tells us that God is patient. God is patient. How many of you glad that God is patient with you? How many of you glad that the first time you sinned, God didn't shoot down a lightning bolt on you? Zap you right there. How many of you glad that the billionth time you sinned, God didn't send a lightning bolt to zap you right there? That he is patient. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Where would we be if God was not gracious? 
if he was not slow to anger, if he didn't abound in steadfast love and loving kindness. 2 Peter 3.9 talks about the patience of God because there are people who, who mock God and mock Christians and say things like, listen, if Jesus was coming back, he would have done it by now. Where is he? Where's he at? Did he get lost on the way? Does the GPS not work up there by Pluto? Like, uh, you know, where is he at? Peter addresses this in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. That's the return of Christ. How many of you are holding on to that promise? Amen. The Lord is not slow. He, he's not late, as some count slowless, but he is patient toward you. Patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is patient. The, the Lord is, is in this age of grace, extending out his love and his mercy, calling people to be gathered to himself, preparing for himself a bride who will meet him one day in the air. And spend all eternity with him in his kingdom. And he is patiently enduring with sin. He, you know, I, I asked you this morning if, if you're ever provoked by things. If, if it provokes you, think about what it does to a holy God. But God patiently endures with sin. Patiently waits to give people an opportunity to receive Jesus Christ. This is what he is waiting for, extending grace, extending mercy, slow to anger. Number seven, though, tells us, Paul tells us, that not only is God patient, but God is also the judge. God is also the judge. Verse 30 of, of Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, that's his patience, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's to turn from sin, to trust in Christ, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Who is the judge? God is the judge. 1 Peter 4, 5 says, but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's this thing that people say. It's probably one of the dumbest things that I've ever heard anybody say. You can't judge me. God's my judge. Listen, you would much, much rather have me judge you. I am, I am compromised by sin. My morality is all out of whack. I judge on a sliding scale of my own faults and failures, not God. God who is perfectly holy, who is perfectly just. To say God is my judge is one of the most terrifying, that should terrify us, that we will one day stand before him who, the Bible says his eyes are like fire. Perfectly holy, perfect justice. And one day we will all stand before God and we have two options. Either we're clothed in our own righteousness, which the Bible declares to us as filthy rags, 
or we will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Either we will pay the price for our sin or Jesus will pay the price for our sin, but there is a price for sin and it will be paid. God is patient. God is also the judge. Number eight, who is this God? Paul was explicitly clear with them. He is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And this same message that Paul proclaimed in Athens is the same message that I proclaim to you. There is only one God. His name is Jesus Christ. There is only one creator. His name is Jesus Christ. There is only one who has paid the price for your sin. His name is Jesus Christ. There is only one way to be reconciled to God. There are not many ways. There is only one Son of God. There is only one Lamb of God. It is Jesus Christ. God is patient. And he is patiently enduring with sin in the world today. But there is coming a day that he has predetermined, that he has prefixed on his calendar. We don't know when it is. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. I don't know. But our time is short. Our life is short. Our life is like a vapor. God extends to us a moment in time. Grace calling to us to repent calling to us to turn from sin, to turn from evil, to turn from rebellion, to turn from wickedness, and to embrace his son, Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he promises to forgive our sins, to forgive our trespasses, to heal us of our iniquity, to heal our soul, to cleanse our minds, to give us a purpose, to make us part of a family, and to prepare a place for us where we will live forever with him. This is the message. And you must receive Christ or you will stand before Christ condemned in your sin. You say, those are heavy words. That, I don't know if I like that. Uh, that seems kind of intolerant. Yes, it is. God will not tolerate sin. God will not tolerate sin. He is patient and he is loving and he paid the price for sin and you can receive his forgiveness but if you reject Jesus Christ you have no hope. John chapter 3 verse 16 we all know this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You say, is this message for me? Yes, it's for you. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ will receive forgiveness of sins. Period. Done. Finished. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. He came to bring salvation. The reason why, though, is in verse 18. Because whoever believes in him, Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. God today is saying to you, turn from your darkness. Turn from your evil ways. Receive the only way of salvation, Jesus Christ To not receive Christ, to reject Christ, is to live in condemnation before a righteous and holy God. Don't miss this moment. Don't let it pass you by. Do you know God? Have you received him into your heart and into your life? I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. It truly is a light shining into our darkness, your revelation to us. Lord, if you had not shown us and revealed to us your word, we would be hopelessly lost. Lord, we would have no hope of knowing you if you had not revealed yourself first to us. You have revealed yourself in your word. You have revealed yourself in the word made flesh, your son, Jesus Christ. And you have opened our eyes to the truth by the power of your spirit. It's all of your grace. We do not deserve it. We humbly say thank you. You are our God. We love you. We are your people. If you have not bowed the knee before Jesus Christ, if you have not put your faith in his atoning work for you on the cross, Today is your day. Do not let this moment pass you by. The Bible declares that today is the day of salvation. You cannot wait until tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow. You are not promised tomorrow. At any one moment, God who has given us life can require our lives from us. We don't know when that day will come. Turn to Christ. I implore you, turn to Christ. Turn from your idolatry of self, of pursuing everything, of devoting your life to everything and everyone other than Christ. I beg you, don't let this moment pass you by. Be reconciled to God. I'm going to invite us all to pray a a prayer together. It's what's typically called a salvation prayer, though it is not a prayer that brings us salvation. It's Jesus that brings salvation. It's our faith in Christ that works the salvation in our lives. The, The prayer is simply an outward expression of our faith in Christ. But I want us to pray this prayer together and Especially for those, I believe there are some here today that truly are making Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life in this moment. So let's pray this prayer together. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on the cross in my place for my sin. I repent of my sin. I ask you to cleanse me Make me clean. 
Thank you for loving me. Help me to follow Jesus all the days of my life and fill me with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning. If you're here today and, and you made that prayer your own, you, you truly today put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to say welcome to the family of God. We love you. We're so glad that you're here. I want to encourage you on, on your way out today, stop by our welcome table and just let, let the precious people there know of, of your, your, your dedication and your faith in Christ. And, and we'd love to get to know you and, and to help you in any way that we can to, to walk and to follow Jesus, to live the life he's called us to live. I'll pray one more prayer of blessing over us before we go out this morning. Father, help us. We need your help. Lord, we need your help. You've called us to be salt in the earth. You've called us to be lights shining, a city on a hill. Lord, so often we curse the darkness instead of lighting a candle, instead of shining the light. God, help us this week as we go out from this place, having spent time in your presence, having spent time in your word, having fill, being filled again, Lord, that we would go out as salt and lights. Lord, and not, not in some sort of esoteric terms, but in specific ways in, in each one of our lives and, and in our families, Lord, that you would help us to love and serve others as you have loved and served us. Lord, help us to walk in forgiveness as you have forgiven us. Lord, help us to show others kindness and goodness and mercy as you have shown kindness and goodness and mercy to us. Lord, help us to share the hope that we have, the gospel of Jesus Christ, as someone shared it with us to be lights in this world of darkness, that we would see healing come to families, to communities, to this community. Lord, bless us today as we go out. Protect us, watch over us, keep us safe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you.